0: I was in a state department meeting uh, at one school and they were talking about our scores dropping after this new test was implemented. And they weren't willing to acknowledge that every school that took this test on average dropped the same amount. They were just so focused on labeling us as a failing (laughs) school.
1: here, a conversation about teaching. My name is Jim Mares. My name is Marcus Luther. Uh, So before we get started, some reminders about the show. First, this is an independent and listener supported podcast. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate and diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to support folks in the classroom. Most importantly, the show is about saying thank you to all the teachers out there, past, present and future who understand their classroom practice through a lens of social justice and change. Nobody knows better than the folks who work in schools right now, what's at stake for students and communities. And we wanna just keep saying thank you and encourage you to keep up the good work. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We'd love to hear from you on social media at The Broken Copier, and you can subscribe to episodes and other writing at thebrokencopier.substack.com. If you'd like to support, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast wherever you stream or just text your friends a link to the episode Uh, so they can tune in as well. So with that, I'm going to turn over to Marcus to help us talk about everyone's favorite topic in the summertime, standardized test scores.
0: Thanks, Jim. And (laughs) we're really going to try and center this around what it's like as a teacher to receive these scores in the summer, kind of talking about our personal mindsets. Of course, we'll hit on testing overall and how it influences our classrooms and cultures, but uh, we really do want to make sure that we just kind of hold and center that emotional experience in the middle of the summer about what it's like to receive this email in a lot of cases that in some ways people see as defining your entire experience in the classroom, uh, which we don't necessarily agree with, but that's a real thing. Before we do all that at summertime, we've been reading things probably more than we can during the school year. What's something that a book you've opened or something you've read, uh, that really is, uh, I don't know, piqued your interest interest.
1: So I think like a lot of people, I, um, I'm I'm spending too much time on social media. I'll admit this I read uh, so I read I read Twitter a lot that's something that I've been reading and just like articles and I, I just I need to get away from that and it's like a brain thing but I wanted to I wanted to mention that because I hope other people are in the same spot as well and I just want to be reading better stuff uh, that's more um, calorie dense in terms of you know my brain. Um, but Aaron, a little while, a little while ago, Aaron got me this book. Uh, it's called Friday Black by a new author. Um, his name is Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. And um, it was a 2018 debut um, book. It's, it's not a novel. It's a collection of short stories. And they're very like uh, twisted, dystopian short stories that are about race. And specifically, many of them are about being black in, in the U.S. And um, I've... Been very impressed. This is a, it's a, he's a younger guy. I think he recently graduated from SUNY Albany, and I noticed in his, um, in his credits and in, in his acknowledgement of the book, he acknowledged George Saunders, who's a writer that I really admire. Um, I was, I've been a fan of Saunders for a long time, but anyhow, Friday Black, um, it's kind of heavy reading, but it's, it's really, he has a very, very powerful voice. Reminds me a lot of Ray Bradbury, to be honest, and even a little Kurt Vonnegut. Um, but he's, he's a very, it's been, a, it's been a very gripping read, uh, so far this summer. How about you?
0: Yeah, I will well, echo what you've said. And I think especially with uh, newborn life, not getting extended sleep, uh, it's hard to get beyond that Twitter, social media, short bursts of info, which we know is killing our attention mm-hmm. nationwide, uh, w- worldwide. But uh, a book I just read, I think it's a, it was an interesting experience was, uh, The Roundhouse by Louis Erdrich. Uh, and this book was actually one that I wasn't enjoying. I think that question of do you get rid of a book? Do you stop halfway or do you push through so you can check off? I read X number of books. Yeah. And then I got to the end and the end floored me in a really, uh, a poignant way talking about how like justice can be sketchily applied almost like justice is something you paint with and the, the idea that it doesn't come across on the canvas of our world in an even way I had one of the better closing lines of a novel I've experienced so I guess I yeah. just throw it back to you what do you do when you're you pick up a book you commit to it is it good to sustain that commitment if you're halfway through and struggling because I was but then I <laughs> kept through I, I, I'm glad that I pushed through but I definitely was struggling
1: man you're asking me this question at the wrong wrong time uh, because I just finished Infinite Jest like two months ago, <laughs> um, and I am not going to admit on this podcast how long that book took me to read. Um, well, it was, I'll say it was over a year uh, because it was a it was a lot of like I would read for a couple months at a time. There was, there was a spell, especially around the wedding when Aaron and I were getting married, when uh, we were in the midst of wedding planning and holidays, there was definitely like a three month spell when I just like, didn't come back to the book um, for a while, but I definitely did. Um, I, I pushed through and the ending of that book, uh, Kevin, if you're listening, I hope you are laughing at this because my friend Kevin um, is the one who, has helped me, uh, me through the book a little bit, but I would say I'm taking a very, and I'm really trying to be intentional about picking up books that are like pretty short, like powerful page turners, because infinite jest I will say was, and also like, I'm somewhat self-conscious of being like a white dude on a podcast talking about reading infinite jest. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things we can unpack there, but I am, I'm really glad I read it. I'll say that like, it is an amazing work of fiction. Um, and I, it does make me read, want to read, um, especially Ulysses, which is one that I haven't done, done yet. Um, but it's, it's not, there's a, it's a slog. Like it is like a major commitment. And I think the, the value that I found in that and like finally finishing it. And I'll say like the last like 600 pages or so of the book were um, not easy to get through, but like a lot, it was, it was, it's an incredibly, it's, it is one of the most intricate and incredible works of fiction that I've ever, ever read in my life. But it's, I feel like I'm just not the right person to ask because I'm, <laughs> I just did this uh, like, you, you know, eight plus month long commitment where I was just, refusing to put the book down just because I wanted to get through it. Um, and I did, and I'm happy that I did, but I, I don't know that. I don't know. I, I I feel, I feel that the answer should be, yeah, like feel free to put the book down. Like nobody's giving you a grade. And honestly, my friend, Kevin, I told him one time, uh, we met up one time and I was like, Oh, I'm so I'm like embarrassed with how long it's taking me to get through this book. And he was like, just like no one's grading you just no one, no one cares about how long it's going to take you to read this book. Just read the book if you want and don't read it if you don't want. And that was the thing, honestly, that, that convinced me to read the books or or like that really pushed through. So um, do you, do you put books down? Do you, do you get in that mindset or no? Well, I struggle with this question. I'm like recovering now
0: because you named the two books that I have attempted to read even writing dates of like, Oh, I'm starting this again. I'm going to finish like in the front of my copy of infinite Jest, There's multiple dates of when I started and failed. And then yep. you of course just follow through with Ulysses, the other text that I've not been able mm-hmm. to push through. I'm like 200 pages into each. This is like over a decade. So one year is nothing. It's, it's, uh, yeah. But I try, so my, where I struggle with this is I think as much as I, I want to enjoy reading, I do, I do think of it also is like a muscle, especially in today's landscape with distractions and social media. Oh, yeah. And I like pushing through for the sake of building those muscles up yeah. in my own capacity. And I try once a summer to pick a text. That's kind of like a, like a laundry list, something like I've wanted to read for a long time. Mm-hmm. That I haven't, and I haven't started. I don't want to name a commitment now and then embarrass myself by not falling through read some different books this summer but i like to do one a summer because i do believe in pushing those muscles but i don't think it's necessarily the best advice as a reader to push through uh but yeah i struggle with this because i i do think that there's virtue in the pushing through i don't think a pushing through diet only mm-hmm. is going to be a healthy happy because re- like reading should be a happy positive and fun right, yeah so. totally The one thing I'll add to this though is I think it is easier to read texts that share your perspectives that you've walked through and can empathize with the experiences. And I think it's really important to experience different experience, uh, different perspectives, different identities from authors. And when you do that, it can be, it can be harder initially to relate to what you're reading. So I do think that pushing through is incredibly important, especially as to white men podcasting to make sure that relatability and enjoyment doesn't hold us back from experiencing different perspectives especially incumbent upon us as teachers who bring text into our classroom yeah so that's the other thing i'd add in
1: yeah yeah you ready for a hard pivot uh let's hard pivot to uh something that's just as fun to talk about with uh, like standardized test scores
0: yeah because it's kind of like this like we're in the middle of summer we're reading you're reading your infinite jest and enjoying it hence the word jest. Mm-hmm. uh yeah. and you get an email saying oh Your AP scores are available, scores that often people will look at and say, you passed the test, Mm -hmm. you got a proficient score if it's a different test, and you had a successful teaching experience with a student or X number of students passed the test, it was a good year. And vice versa, often, often people will say, if you didn't pass the test, if they didn't get their college credit, then that was a failure of a class for that student. That's the mindset a lot of people have, which puts immense pressure, you click a button and the results are in front of
1: you. Uh, what's that like for you, Jim? Yeah, not. It's not fun. Um, I think. Oh man, the first thing that I want to say, if there's any like new or younger teachers out there who just feel like immense pressure uh, around standardized testing, um, it's it's okay like to feel anxious and in even some cases to feel like a failure like those i think those feelings are very normal and very like very real for a lot of people which is why it is incredibly important to know about all the different ways that you weren't a failure you're not a failure like teaching is a hard job and and getting test results back like uh in my case this year like we don't you know, the the numbers and the ways that College Board reports data out are a little bit problematic. So the percentage numbers don't make as, as much sense. But my students this year, I will say, like, they did worse percentage-wise in this year of, of a year of remote, of in-person instruction. And they did last year. It was, it was almost exactly the same as remote instruction, but it was, like, one or two points less. So am I to take that number and say, oh, well, apparently I, you know apparently I was a better teacher on zoom. No, of course not. Like I know for sure that my students are much better prepared than they were uh, leaving my classroom. There's certainly many of them are not at the level that I would want them to be, to be quite honest. But like, I know that the holistic view of the year, like the the muscle we were just, you know, this, the reading conversation I think does connect here in terms of long-term mindsets and habits because as a teacher, your habits around reading and writing are something that I'm always looking to develop. And I, that's clearly not related, uh, or it clearly doesn't show up in the AP testing scores. Um, so I don't know, there's, there's a, a lot of mixed feelings and the AP test was lower for sure this year for me than I was hoping for, but it is what it is. Like you have to, you have to just look at the numbers and adjust and see what you can do differently and also balance that with what you you know to be true about having a vision for your classroom and and continuing with systems that you really believe in and think are valuable for students.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you naming that. Uh, And I think something I am struggling with now thinking about this is if we can separate our personal emotions and ego in looking at these scores as teachers versus the very important need to understand this as data that does inform the story of our classroom so that we can be better in years to come because i think that's something that i mean i'll be honest like i know that if i click on that button and the scores are extremely bad and in this case i didn't this is my first year with the normal course i don't have much to compare it to i was pretty happy overall but we'll in future years have better comparisons for better or worse Mm -hmm. but if it was extremely bad like a devastating bad score i think my first emotional impulse would be like people are gonna look at me like i did a bad job as a teacher i didn't serve my students well and also like a level of guilt in the sense that with the ap testing these are students for the most part invested Considerable finances uh, mm-hmm. to pay to take the test, and I would feel like I let them down. So I guess I was like, how to separate those emotions and process them healthily. Like I, I want to be invested. I, I feel like I want to be accountable to my students, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I don't want that emotional investment to keep me from being as objective as possible. As using this as a tool, because it needs to be a tool. And we're going to talk later in this conversation, I think, about how this could be a better tool in the way it's you know shared and spread out and incorporate as teachers, but uh, if I am so stressed about my own, how others perceive me and how my students perceive me with these scores, that becomes a wall that keeps me from using them to be better as a teacher going forward. So I try to like be aware of that, but also just be honest with myself about like the emotional unpacking that comes with receiving these scores, which could be standardized test scores for any grade. It's not just AP scores that we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah. One example that I am thinking about right now is, you know, there's a lot of comparative analysis. So the college board, they'll give you like the global pass rate, and then they'll give you, which is everyone, uh, everyone who took that particular test that year for those people, you know, if, if you don't teach AP, but you have a global pass rate, you have a state pass rate, and then you have like your group pass rate. Those are like the three top line numbers that are reported by the college board. And for me, in both of my AP class, I teach AP Lang and AP seminar. This year I taught three Lang and one seminar. Next year it's going to be two and two. Uh, for both of them, the Massachusetts pass rate was, was about 80 percent. Um, and in my which is high, yeah, it's a kind of a high number. Um, and in my AP seminar class, that is, I did, we, I got almost 80% pass rate in that class. Right. But it was one, it was one section and many of the students were sort of no, like many of the students are, were ranked highly within their class and they are straight eight, like at least certainly like above 3.0 students. And one of the issues that I have with the college board data that's, where it becomes not as helpful is like, I have no idea throughout the rest of Massachusetts or throughout the rest of the country who within the school system is taking, uh, is taking those classes. Right. And so my AP Lang classes was for the past two years has been way below the Massachusetts state average, but 100% of our juniors take that class because our school believes in that. And honestly, I, I don't know if it was up to me. I don't know that I would have a hundred percent pass rate or if I would have a, if I would have a hundred percent of kids like required to take AP Lang. Um, But I certainly think a course like AP Lang, I would certainly advocate for a student to take the class, even if they were not, even if they, even if it was a little bit of a stretch for them to get a three. Um, because I know of the importance of the de- of developing good habits as a writer and as and as a critical reader, as a critical thinker, I know that those enduring habits I, is something that I'm driving at in AP Lang all all year long, and even it and that's good for students. Like that's a really healthy thing to be exposed to and to try to shoot for. So I don't know. It becomes. AP testing, I think, can become very um, – well, it's, it's a completely different beast than other standardized testing because I think the college board knows that not – and most people actually sort of think of AP scores typically as a class that's that not everyone takes.
0: Yeah, I really – like that point you made at the end is important. Let's stay with AP for a sec and then we can broaden just other types of tests that we've experienced, and that makes it more universal conversation-wise. But I guess two things I'm thinking about right now. The first is that uh, just that I think a good exercise if you're a teacher listening to this, new teacher, or you're going into a situation, not just the APA, this applies to all tests, is that a good way that I think to health healthily process these scores something I did this year that I'm going to continue doing going forward is to look at the data that you've collected throughout the year, um, like your classroom assessments, tracking how students are going in order to support them, which I believe is imperative. As a teacher, you should be able to say, mm-hmm. this is what my students have learned and why. Uh, and I keep that data. And I actually went through, based on the kids who were taking the test, because only half of my students take the test. And you made an important point about the context being very different in each situation. And that can, doesn't show up on the score report. Uh, but I made a guess based on my data of how students would do, not as a game, but to see that for me, that's a way to reflect how well do I understand this test that I'm preparing students for? How well does my internal class data help me understand how they're going to perform? And then make adjustments going forward. Like if there's a kid who was very different than what I guessed, okay, what was the story of that student's year and why did they do better or worse than I my data internally uh, expected that to be. So That's something that I think is a good, healthy strategy along with just making sure that you are holding yourself accountable to your students and measuring their growth internally in your classroom, regardless if you have a standardized test or not, would be my one plug. The other thing that is difficult to balance is that there are very good reasons to not put AP scores or whatever standardized test scores at the top of the mountain. Like we know every classroom context is different. Students can have an incredible learning experience, walk away with immeasurable skills that they will take to future courses and mindsets and might not pass the exam. In my case, might not even take the exam. So the, the numbers should not define their experience in the course. And you and I can, we could play a game right now and just go back and forth for the next few hours with all the reasons that standardized tests are problematic that they don't measure accurately at times, that, that that we're talking about a billion dollar company that has immense power and control over the entire education system and almost serves as a barrier to college for many students because of that. I'm talking about college mm-hmm. board. But at the same time, I don't think it's a healthy exercise to play the excuse game because I think and sometimes in my mind, that's playing into that emotional ego. Like I, I know I can come up with reasons that I don't, I'm not concerned about scores being bad because I know there's real reasons that are rational, but I try not to go down that path, even though I'm tempted to at times And I'm saying that and I'm holding myself accountable, hopefully to that. But I don't think that serves me or my students. Well, even if it's true, so I, I, I don't know I'm kind of talking in circles here.
1: No, I think it's, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've, I think it's, it comes down to, you know, how are you using the, like, how are you using the data? I feel very fortunate. I I remember last August, like, walking in, we were, you know, we were having data meetings and looking at the, looking at who, whatever data teachers had from the last year, um, because not everyone in my school obviously is an AP teacher. And I just remember my principal telling me, like, she, she just, it was very quick and it was a like a very direct comment, but she was like, she said something to the effect of, you know, I hope you don't feel bad about your AP test scores. Like it is what it is. And, 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 um, that type of, like that type of context, I understand. And she and I, you know, she's well aware and also sort of, I know, thinks in the same way that I do in terms of how problematic um, some of the reporting can be from college board and she has like a very clear understanding of at least how at least how ap scores operate differently than other standardized testing scores but i just think that i raise this example as because i know that there are a lot of teachers out there who are told explicitly by administrators and by aps and by even their principals like not necessarily in these words but this is what you got to get in order to have a successful school year. And I think I'm thankful and fortunate to work in a place that I know that my, my instructional leadership team, like they do have a really clear understanding of that. And they, they look at a teacher's performance much more holistically than, you know, well, did you get an 80% pass rate or not? Um, And I think that's just a very critical point both as a teacher uh, to understand the context of the testing and also just what type of leadership you're uh, le- what type of leadership environment you're in and how it, what is the school culture around standardized testing like those are really critical questions to ask. Um, do, do you guys talk in your school about do you do you talk with other teachers about test scores? I mean what what is the how do people talk in your school about, success and failure around standardized tests. So this is, I'm new to this
0: school that I'm at. This is my, this was just my second year and with COVID, I don't think I want to settle any assumptions or norms at this point, but I definitely similar to you. I'm grateful that there's a holistic mindset that it's way beyond what testing is. And you're not being like, I don't think that there's a negative culture around testing, which I have experienced in previous schools where not only is the data for each teacher posted Mm -hmm. in front of everyone to see, but a lot of times it's, uh, talked about inaccurately or, uh, not, not with all the context that's needed. And I'm very grateful to be in a school that has that positive culture and values that align with where I'm at. So, uh, that's very nice to say that, but I also know that a lot of teachers aren't in that situation. So I think maybe we should kind of check ourselves a little bit about what it's like to be listening to this conversation, Mm -hmm. even between the two of us, where we have the space to process these in a, in a healthier way, where like I've been in schools where there's immense pressure put on teachers, as you noted, uh, and not fairly, like where the, like I've seen people present data with that's completely almost inaccurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we like, for instance, an example, Arkansas early in my career, switched from a much more accessible test to a proficient score early to what we call the park. Oh test. yeah. I remember the park and test. Like nationwide when states switched over to the park test, the scores dropped by like 40 to 50% proficiency rates on most assessments initially. And that wasn't acknowledged. I was in a State Department meeting uh, at the one school, and they were talking about our scores dropping after this new test was implemented. And they weren't willing to acknowledge that every school that took this test on average dropped the same amount. They were just so focused on labeling us as a failing mm-hmm. school. Uh, and I think that's the type of example of where it's probably really hard to hear us talking about processing these without ego and being really po- focused on learning right. from the data. If you are in a context right now, where you're not given the space and credibility to do that in a healthy fashion that serves your students rather than punishes them and punishes you as a teacher in serving them. Uh, I'm guessing this is probably hard to hit. Uh, listen to. So I just want to acknowledge that in case that's where you're at, because that is a real situation that is pervasive in education. Yeah, for
1: sure. I think um, the the clarity of vision around um, uh, like where the instruction is. I don't know. I feel some. I feel deflated. Like I, I just, I do feel deflated in these conversations, and I think. That it is just so. I think you said the word accountability earlier. Like, because I do feel accountable to the students, and I really want them to get these high scores. Um, And it can be, it can be deflating. It can be very deflating when it doesn't, when it doesn't pan out. And so, um, I want, I wanted to mention. I was introduced in my grad program. um, to this idea of Campbell's law, which has been, if you're in education, maybe you've heard of it. Cause I know that a lot of people it's commonly used uh, to talk about like unintended consequences of standardized testing, especially in education. Um, but I read about this in grad school and basically have always, always thought about it since uh, in any standardized testing conversation. Um, so Campbell's law in 1976 um, it, or in the, in the seventies is kind of when, uh, Donald T. Campbell, who was a social scientist and who wrote about research methodology, he wrote that uh, the more any quantitative social indicator is used for social decision making, the more subject it will be to corruption pressures, and the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes that it is intended to monitor. Um, and you know, the idea behind this is like the act of measuring something, the act of measuring something can make it a bad measure, because you can't really predict the different ways in which um, the different ways in which states will, or not states, but the different way, ways in which school systems and teachers and people and superintendents or whoever, they're all different across the board. And they're all going to do different things, to, and sometimes healthy things and sometimes really unhealthy things, uh, just in response to this act of measuring. I mean, you mentioned the park test earlier, I think I think I, I might be misremembering this, but I, don't, I think Mississippi just did not just chose not to report their scores. I, I think that, that that when Park was implemented, I don't know if Mississippi took they were across the river, but I think that first year it came out when all those scores dropped with Park across the states like Mississippi just literally did not share out the scores. Um I hope I'm correcting that. It's been a long time. And so maybe I'm misremembering it, but it's just, it just goes to show that like things are, it's been so hard as a teacher over for me over the past 10 years, because I've seen so many different iterations of standardized testing in the first place that I mean, they become, it just becomes white noise. And like, why, why are you be being punitive towards teachers because of something that you know any statistician or economist or someone who studies this stuff for real will tell you like it's really hard to measure it's hard to draw conclusions based on this data sometimes
0: yeah and i think when you get to the why and going back to campbell's law you have states doubling down on the results of these tests knowing that they're problematic tests at times uh, where you're grading schools based on their performance and then you're funding schools or you're giving students the waivers to leave the school district, the, a district I was at where they were mailed, despite this current year's scores were high enough to raise it out of failing status. Before those scores were released, they mailed a letter to everyone in the s- district saying, this is a failing school based on past year scores and you have the ability to transfer outside of that district. Imagine what that does to a community. Uh, you think about schools that market themselves. And this is where as much as I get how the idea of competition from the business world is uh, tempting for education, if you have schools marketing themselves saying, oh, we're X number of proficiency or we're this uh, caliber of school based on our test results, you're now married to those results. And in that school, then let's say you're in a school that has a good year test results. And then you have go out and market it all over the community to try to recruit students to your school a uh, brand yourself, you're now beholden to that brand, which is beholden to a flawed data met- metric in a lot of times. And then that puts immense pressure on the teachers and the students themselves and really takes what could be a healthy data set. Like in a perfect world, you get this data and it helps you understand your students' learning. You transfer that back to students. I think this is why we we've talked about these tests really should be earlier yeah. in the year, where we get the results as teachers and then can use them as feedback to help our students learn. Because the goal of education should be about learning. And when you have testing at the end of the year, results delivered in summer, when you're no longer working Mm -hmm. with those students, almost in every case, it's not about learning anymore. And I think that is where the deflation Mm -hmm. comes from uh, in thinking about how these tests get in the way of learning far more than they help enhance learning. And that's where I struggle a lot Uh, because I do like, honestly, I have heard people criticize standardized testing and then I ask them, well, how do you know what your students are learning in the classroom? And they, they don't have a great answer. And I think it is our responsibility as teachers to have that. And I think part of the story can be a standardized test. Like I'm open in a better world to using these as a way of assessing myself as a teacher to understand how I can do better but we're not in that world. And there are systems that have been implemented and are now being exacerbated that make it that much yeah. more damaging. And it just, it, it, you're right. It is, I don't want to be like hopeless two podcasts in a row, but it is a really frustrating situation around standardized testing in terms of what it does to teachers, what it does to schools and communities and students. Themselves. What
1: are some ways or recommendations that you would have? Like, how do you talk about the AP test? I mean, I know that the AP test is kind of a little bit different, but it's, it's a standardized test. And I think, how do you, how do you frame the tests to your students in a way that you think is healthy and productive? And how do you talk about it with them?
0: Yeah. So in my situation where students are opting in or out, and it's typically about 50, 50, 50% of the students taking it and 50% of the students not taking it, uh, which is quite an environment to be in. uh, One I just be as completely honest as possible like this is what this test offers in terms of end results this is how the test is scored we're going to do these measures earlier in the year just so you can kind of know where you would be and anticipate that uh because you have to decide in november and the reason if you're ap make people decide early collect their money so that they don't get it back oh my goodness it's all money yeah it's, it's so again infuriated that a billion dollar company Takes advantage of students by making them opt into the test as early as they, they do. They said it. Uh, and, or not that was a do. change that
1: they made only a couple of years ago. And it was because they said that the students would do better. Like, come on. We like everyone knows you're just. It, it's not it's yeah.
0: money. Yeah. This is a, Yeah, talk yeah. about nonprofit, right? Uh, but in general. So I, I'm very open with them about that. I talk about, uh, I'm very willing to say, like, these are flawed measures. Anytime you're assessing anything with multiple choice, it's not a great measurement of learning. It's just a cheaper, more efficient way for a testing company to grade things quicker, as opposed to essays, open responses, things such as that. Uh, And then I also acknowledge to them my tension, And I think this is really something I've leaned on the latter half of my career so far, is I try to point out the paradoxes to my students that I'm in as a teacher, such as I know that many students in my class are very vested in this test and the outcomes it can provide them. And I, is my job to be accountable to them. I also have students who very much are not taking the test and still need many other skills that the constraints of the test itself limit me from accessing. If I was only teaching to the test, we would not do, All the things we need to do to prepare students to be successful going forward as critical thinkers Mm -hmm. and writers because it's a time test with short essays and there's a strategy and a game to it and if that was all i focused on the scores might be a little bit better but students would miss out on so much learning and that's a paradox i struggle with so in my messaging to students what do i do i'm honest about that paradox i talk i literally like will put the teeter-totter on the screen and tell them how i am struggling with straddling that And I try to also get their feedback in terms of what do they think? Where are they at? I put their feedback on the board, as we've talked about in this podcast before. And I really try as much as possible to be honest with them about where I'm at, what I'm struggling with and better and trying to serve them in a diverse group of students. Right. They all want different things in that space. But I think at this point, I fall back on honesty as the best path
1: forward. And I think it's I think there's a conversation about like, well, it's not, especially as the kids get older, right? And as they're in high school, like, there's a conversation to be had. Like, what do you want from the AP test? Like, what is the AP, if you are going to take an AP test, what's it going to tell you? Um, Why is it valuable to you? <laughs> and some of them may say, well, it's not valuable to me. <laughs> and then you have that conversation. But I th- I think so often there can be just like... um especially like in middle schools, especially in middle schools, but perhaps even earlier, like just this assumption that success on the test equals success in the class. And that can be a a very challenging uh, environment for a kid to be in. So I appreciate like, yeah, that you give students the opportunity to, A, opt out of taking the test itself and B, like, I don't know, being honest about and understand. And also I come back to this idea of like continually communicating over time, the vision for what this, because if the students know that you have a clear vision for the class and if the students know that you have been working towards specific goals, like students know if they're getting better or not in your class, right? Um, regardless of what, like if they're scoring, if they're scoring ones, on an AP essay rubric consistently and then they're moving into a 2 and 3 by the time they take the test well maybe they're not maybe that's not good enough to earn the 3 or the 4 on the AP test but it's still growth it's still an important growth metric for them and it's something that they can, can like carry carry with and and, and be proud of
0: Yeah. And I think the other advice to go with this for teachers listening, uh, particularly newer teachers, is that a healthy way I try to respond to that paradox is that I feel like it adds accountability for me to have a really clear vision of what other things beyond the test itself I want to students get better at and naming that vision. like I, I do a vision statement personally and reflecting on the school year beforehand. Here are the things I want students to gain at and become better at. And have be, these statements will be true for them by the end of the year. I communicate that to students throughout the year. And look, I'll be honest, as much as it was fun to see a lot of positive scores uh, in the summer results, it means a lot more when I get the yeah. written emails saying, thank you for helping yeah. me be a better writer. Like those, and I think, and we did things like we went beyond what was on the scope of the test itself. We had seminar conversation. Like, I think about that. Are there any discussions or conversations on a standardized mm-hmm. test? No. Does that mean you should eliminate conversations and seminar discussions from right. your classroom? Of course not. But someone could look at your classroom and say, you're wasting time with this enriching critical discussion on this immensely important topic because you're not doing multiple choice yeah. practice for the test. Of course, when yeah. I rebuke that, but that's the bind that these tests and the systems that amplify the tests put teachers in not to mention what happens. I, I have fear for younger students who've grown, you know, for, let me just ask this question when you were growing up, not like senior year AP classes, but when you're younger, what, what were standardized tests, anything for you? That you no, about they were,
1: um, the school, I loved them because it, the school was basically like, they were pretty flexible. It was kind of like a little detour from school. And the teachers, I mean, it was obviously a long time ago, but I just remember like the day before the standardized test, our teacher was like, all right, for the next three days, I'm thinking of uh, my my English and history classes for sure. But our teachers would say, you know, FYI, the next three days, we're going to, you know, we're going to pause whatever unit we're in right now. And for the next three days, we're going to do these testing. Uh, because, and I'm sure she gave me a, her name was Mrs. Gagan. I'm sure she gave me like a very 7th and 8th grade friendly way of thinking about it, but she was like, look, we're going to take this test. This compares you to other uh, students in New Hampshire, and it it you shouldn't worry about it. Just do your best and answer the questions, and you'll be fine. And it was, I mean, for me, I remember them, I viewed them as easy. Especially, I, I, I definitely remember in high school, I've everyone viewed them as like almost a day off of school because the testing was was the teachers just weren't the teachers were extremely confident for sure in their instruction um, but also just like they kind of thought the tests it, from my perspective as a student which I'm sure is probably not the same as what it actually was in the, in the teachers meetings and the admin meetings and stuff but I just kind of thought that the teachers thought the tests themselves were if not a joke, like certainly just like an annoying distraction that like they had to kind of get rid of. Um, and now I know in New Hampshire, even the, the game has changed. Like they, it's like um, it's, it's different. Like it's way different. It's way more serious. Um, I think the tests have probably gotten more difficult over time, but when it, yeah, I remember being in school, the testing days were just like, easy days. And, and you kind of, you know, you showed up, you took this little test and then you, they weren't, they were, they were nice because you basically got a break from school for the rest of the afternoon afternoon. Yeah. And certainly
0: I think my story is similar growing up at uh, the same time period, that teachers never seem to feel as if the results of these tests, which were not very frequent also, it wasn't even every year or at least for our case, uh, they didn't define who they were as teachers in the yeah. story of the classroom. And I think the more common story right now is that you have states in our country in some ways that says these tests are incredibly important. You look at all the learning loss articles, that the BS stuff going around lately. And then what happens is you have states that say, okay, we're going to grade your school based on this. We might yeah, fund your I mean, school based on this. So teachers... This test is really important. So what do teachers feel a burden to do? Because teachers, Mm -hmm. I remember the feeling this, you get worried that students aren't going to take this seriously because a lot of times these results, especially for younger students, they're not going to affect the student's grade. And the students know this the older they get. So what do teachers and schools do? You take a message to your students and say, this is really important. And you try to up the urgency around a test that quite honestly is not urgent to them. It's just a measure of their learning, but it's urgent to everyone with everything around them, the teachers and how they're scored, the administration and how it's viewed, the school and the community itself. And you put immense pressure on students and one, increased anxiety around testing has been up and going up as of late. But two, you make learning about the test score. And a lot of these same people doing this, I think most people are doing it because they feel pressured to, not because they think this is the right thing to do, but you are these same people, if you ask them, what should students care about? Oh, they shouldn't care about what their grade or test score they should care about what they learn. But that's not the message our system mm-hmm. is sending students. And look, I mean, Google schools, that front page, whether it's a public school or a charter school, and says there's achievement yeah. data, top line number. This is how we define ourselves as a school. How can anything other than students taking that message and internalizing of this is how I define myself as a student. That's the logical outcome. That What we're seeing is what we would expect if someone took a step back and looked at the whole picture. We're coaching students to believe these tests mm-hmm. are the end all be all. And we're treating teachers like they are. Like why I wouldn't a, that be the
1: outcome? A quick little story about that. Um, I don't offer this anecdote up in criticism because the teacher who I'm going to um, refer to here, she, she, was an amazing teacher is an amazing teacher. Um, I taught eighth grade I taught uh, my school in March we moved to a project-based learning model and so in um, as part of our eighth grade curriculum we designed a project-based interdisciplinary social studies and ELA curriculum And part of that assessment, social studies at the time was not uh, was not an eighth grade test, but there was, I, uh, I think it was park actually. Um, there was an eighth grade state mandated grade level test for English. That was a part of the, the curriculum that we sort of planned around. So I had known this test. I knew the ins and outs of the test very well. I knew what it was going after. I knew how it was different from ACTAP, which was the test of the Arkansas something, something or other, uh, before they switched to park. But I knew, I knew what park was, I knew what the standards were going after. I understood how the test worked. And so I was able all year long to design and implement certain routines that were like each time, part of the different ways in which the students would write essays. Uh, and obviously the idea is to like structure and then vertically align your curriculum to, you know prepare them for this bar. But I wasn't and I made an intentional effort to especially because it was an interdisciplinary course the unit tests and the project products that the kids were going after all year like I I wasn't talking about the test, right? Like I wasn't saying, "Oh, we're going to do X, Y, and Z because in May you're going to have to take this test." Like that wasn't that wasn't really part of the language of the class. Um, It was just that I was planning assessments that I knew were aligned and I had, I was tracking all year or whatever. Um, So I was pretty confident with the data and internally I was reading that kind of stuff and I understood who's on track, who's not on track, et cetera. But that kind of analysis is pretty baseline and like, it's, it's relative. I mean, you have to be organized you have to know your grading and systems and stuff, but it's, it's pretty baseline to see who is on track versus not well in the other room in their math teacher about a month out in big cause all the kids had laptops and that you log into class, you have your daily agenda in big, bold, red letters. The first thing that you looked up as, as um, the first thing you saw in um, this math class was X number of days until the test, right? Starting like 25 days out. Uh, and, like, every moment, every aspect of the math classroom was the whole framing of it was, oh, well, we're getting ready for the test. Well, the students in eighth grade, my eighth grade year, they uh, wrote a petition. I, this was all unbeknownst to me. The eighth graders wrote a petition against me to... And like a bunch of them signed it (laughs) and they turned it into the principal. And they were talking to their parents and they were saying, Mr. Mayors is not preparing us for the test. And I literally walked into school one day with a signed petition. I mean, God love them, a signed petition from all of the eighth graders demanding that I stop this project-based learning nonsense and start preparing them for the real learning, which was the standardized test, which, by the way, was coming up in, like, 10 days. And I was just like, guys, like... And then we had a whole... Like, I had to set aside a a whole class period, multiple class periods, probably, to address this misconception. Um, And I certainly... I should have... I probably should have at least talked about the test a little bit before, but I was like, look, I, I'm not, no, I'm not putting a, a standardized test countdown on your daily agendas, but I've been like, if you, and I, and I gave him a practice test. I was like, look, everything that we've been doing all year as part of your projects, all the little essays, the exit tickets, the paragraph writing, all of these routines and things that I've been having you do all year long are because I'm aware of this test and they've all been designed to help you succeed on the test. And you guys don't have anything to worry about. Like you're ready for the test. And at first they didn't believe me. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to give you a, I'll give you a practice test. So I had them log into the website and do a practice test. And they, and then they saw, they were like, oh, like, yeah this is exactly like the way that he's grading is exactly aligned to what we're being asked to do on the test. But I just one I I thought it was funny, but I also thought it was just sad that I just felt like that was actually also a failure for, uh, for them to think that they weren't learning uh, because of the absence of me talking about the test. So um yeah it's it is a strange world out there and i don't think anyone has it right right now
0: no but on that note we've been doing this world for 10 years and i don't think it's changing anytime soon so i want to end today thinking about what you would tell a new or teacher going into this situation who is feeling pressure either they just got their first results this summer or they're thinking about going to the classroom next year what are some things that we want to promote to them that would be helpful in navigating this? Cause I don't think the answer is to say, screw the test. This doesn't matter. I have philosophical differences with the test. I'm not going to talk about it. One that's not healthy too. That's not serving your students. Cause a lot of times those tests do have meaningful results for them. It'll also not situate you well within your school community and you need to be a team player, uh, that just generally speaking, that's not the way to build relationships and coalitions as a school leader. So I'm I, adamantly, even if you philosophically oppose standardized testing, I don't think it's healthy as a teacher to take that yeah. mindset into the classroom. That's one
1: thing to say. Yeah, what I think I'm going to use a little, um, I was a distance runner. If, if, if people don't know, I was a distance runner in college. Um, this past, yeah. Real quickly, Jim, uh, how many miles did you run today? I've been. Oh, good for you! Okay, I nice, job. Five, so nice job, nice job, Marcus. Um, Thank you. I've been taking a little break from running because I feel like my body has my body was getting a little bit beat up. Um, so I'm gonna. I'm planning to get back into it, but I've been uh, mostly, honestly, this summer focusing on like the time constraints of run the time as i'm sure you know as a parent too like it's really a time thing and anyhow we can talk about running on another pod but i was a distance runner in college okay when i was in college i was running anywhere between 60 and 80 miles a week not only was it and that's i'm not trying to brag but it is what it is like that it was a full-time college athlete three sports or whatever but I was running an incredible volume and I was in the weight room three times a week right I was able to do that because I had a team I had a I had a, I had a team I had a coach I had a context I had resources I had time I had this entire ecosystem and environment that allowed me to be a really competitive d3. Cross, you know, cross country and track runner, and so I get out of college, and I suddenly am thrust into teaching. I don't have the time. I fall off really hard. I'm not fit anymore, and I get, um, I get more and more defeated. Right, uh, the further I'm away from college, the I was certainly I was in this mindset of like, well, there's no point. Like, there's no point to running it. Like, I shouldn't even go out for a run because I can't hit X amount of time. Um, and I was just kind of in like a really unhealthy mindset like that for a long time. And this summer or last April, I ran my first half marathon and I split 830s. And I was really proud of that. And like if I compare that to I would, I did that, I was, you know, I would run any like 630 or seven minute miles for 10, 12, 14 miles in college. And so if I look now at my half marathon time, like, it seems kind of like a joke, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm more mature, and I have a better perspective on it. But I'm just as proud of my half marathon now post college into my 30s as I am um, as I was with some of my PRs, as, as, you know, and that's the and I'm using running because like, it's also measured, right? It's a concrete time, it's a concrete measurement. But I think the biggest thing that allowed me to be successful post-college and running was understanding, like, the thing that matters is progress. Like, you you can't, don't – the worst thing that I was doing after college was comparing myself to my old times and comparing myself, you know, to my old fitness levels because it's completely different. And the the only thing that made me successful was – to understand like you know what today i'm not feeling that great but and i don't think i'm gonna you know i don't think it's going to be a very good run so i'm just going to leave my watch at home and i'm going to go out and i'm going to get a run in and that is it's going to be what it's going to be and understanding and being able to accept just it's more important progress over perfection is far more important and i think you know i'm using this this running example but I think about that a lot in the classroom. Like I think about that is the most fundamental thing for me to help frame my discussions around standardized testing and writing and test scores or whatever. It do- it I don't care. I don't like I hope you get a good score. I hope you get a 5 or a 4 or whatever you need. But the more important like What I'm hoping to illustrate for students and what I hope students are able to see is the progress overall, not just the end score. Um, So that's what I would say to teachers and as like a helpful way to talk about the test is understand how to how to communicate to students, not just what the goal is, but where they're starting from and what you're going to do to help them get, you know, get better along the way. Yeah. And
0: just to take that analogy and make it more concrete in terms of what it looks like in the classroom, I think, because I, I agree with you 100%, uh, that it's your responsibility as a teacher, and you're better mm-hmm. served as a teacher to create a context to create a classroom where growth is seen and celebrated. And that takes work. It's not just you can't just say like, Oh, we all grew without having any data to go off of it. So it takes work in understanding the assessment and the standards that you're supposed to teach. That's our job to teach the standards, oftentimes that go beyond that are what are, uh, what are on the standardized test. Uh, and then having a system where you can give that feedback to students and build that confidence in them that is around growth, and hopefully where they're the ones who are able to talk about their own growth. And then that also puts you in a situation mm-hmm. where you're better off if you're in a school that isn't as positive around standardized tests, or you have a punitive administrator that neither of us have to experience right now. We're very grateful for that. But if you're in that situation and you have this data set where you can say, no, I can show you how my students have grown. Here are the samples. Here's the data. And that takes work. Mm -hmm. That takes experience. It's very hard to do early on in your career. So talk to the teachers around you. or Honestly, reach out to us. Love getting emails and doing back and forth with teachers all the time over the summer, especially. But taking ownership of this and not using the standardized testing conversation as an excuse, just like we were saying at the top end of this, because it's valid to say that, hey, this is a problem. There's all these sorts of issues, but don't opt out, opt in and build a coalition in your classroom that makes it a tool to hopefully be, help them be more successful because oftentimes it matters to them. And it matters to the families that you're serving as a teacher but do it with clear eyes. And by doing that work, hopefully that it will help you be honest with them. Like, which I try to aspire to in my own classroom. Hey, here's the actual test. There's problems with it. We do that all the time with the English language itself and talking about grammar and the text we read, like, yeah. hey, there's some problems with this, but our job is to explore them, to think it, look at them critically and be mature moving forward to get the results that we
1: can. The Broken Copier is an independent listener supported podcast for teachers. The show is written and hosted by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Mares. I do editing and sound design for the show as well. Thanks to Casey Roberts, a blues musician born and raised in the Mississippi Delta, for writing and supplying original intro music. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher currently based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available now on Spotify. You can stream his music under the name Uncivilized. Fun fact about the album, it includes vignettes from a single called Rain Stomp, which was originally written to support Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Network for Super Tuesday in 2020. Check out all his work at guitaruncivilized.com and uncivilizedtom.com, where you can sign up for guitar lessons on Zoom, just like I do. Links are in the show notes. Thanks very much to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We wanna honor and say thank you to the many educators out there past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of social justice and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free, reach out on social media at the Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback and ideas to the Broken Copier at Substack.com, You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching and learning at thebrokencopier.substack.com where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.